0: My name's Alyssa
1: and i'm vanessa
0: and you're listening to dear literature a podcast where two friends discuss books writing and publishing in today's episode we'll be discussing some of our favorite works of science fiction fantasy and horror as always everything we discuss in this episode can be found in the show notes books mentioned in previous episodes can be found all in one place in the spreadsheet available in our link tree but before that
1: vanessa what have you been up to hi Alyssa. so i read a couple of science articles this week The first is an interview from Electric Literature by Erica Foreman for Dr. Chanda Prescott Weinstein. The story of the universe is also the story of blackness. And like I said, it's an interview with the author about um, her book, The Disordered Cosmos, which is a book, you know, she works in physics. um, And it's dealing with these questions about the universe, like, who are we? Why are we here? All these big questions but through the lens of blackness, through the lens of a community that has been historically excluded from science and ideas about the universe, especially in physics, which is really interesting. Like I have some um, women of color friends who are working in STEM right now, and that's really exciting because you get an entirely new perspective of what it means to be in the universe that's from a, a perspective that we haven't seen before. So that's exciting and that's a big part of the book. Also a major theme from what I understood from the, the article, the interview, is science and storytelling and the way storytelling is so important when we're talking about these big questions. And um, something that Prescott Weinstein talks about is is like the relation of storytelling to like ancestral, like indigenous storytelling in communities of color and the way stories are told. And what it means to even tell a story about the universe, um, which again, like as a writer, that's really exciting, is applying a narrative to something that usually doesn't get a narrative. And uh, also the interviewer is a poet, and thinking about the way a poet is engaging with this scientific research too, and in, in this book, and also just the fact that it's a book talking about physics, right? Like it's, it's making... It's creating a narrative, but it's also making that information available to people who wouldn't normally have it available. So yeah, a lot of interesting things going on, and I would I would like to read the book. That's super cool. I feel like I might have
0: heard about this book before, but I think it's like looking at the universe through this particular lens is super important, especially like... like- being a woman in STEM, but also being, like, a woman in color in STEM, who's been historically excluded from these spaces. This is super cool, and... You know, as someone who's never
1: taken physics... Oh no, Alyssa.
0: Yeah, as someone who's never taken physics, I got away uh, with not taking it, I'm very excited about this. I was really on like a weird kick for a while though about um, quantum
1: mechanics. <laughs> oh, Pro- that comes into this too, kind of. Yeah, like that's not
0: like a main focus because that is a, like subfield, but it's like I was on like a weird yeah. kick because of PBS and Nova for a while. But anyway, it's like specifically, I think it's like also this is related to our conversation on I want to say zero thirteen. We were talking about Ed Yong, who's a science communicator, and you know being able to articulate these very complex ideas to, you know, a storytelling format that is accessible.
1: Yeah, to, to quote the article, um, or to quote the book specifically, to borrow a word from the indigenous communities that my black ancestors likely hailed from, I am a griot of the universe, a storyteller. And so, like, you're thinking about this, like, very complicated story of the universe and how it emerged but you're also like framing that within like your personal narrative as well and thinking about that and that's also a major part of the book as well. I'm just really excited about that and the fact that we even get to be privy to this conversation and again like the interviewer is a poet and like poets (laughs) we know love nature but also are thinking about these things critically as well like like personal narrative and um, science and nature and all these things and how they intersect. So that was cool.
0: And then you said you had a, a couple of science readings for me this week, so what's your second rec?
1: Well, if we're talking about quantum mechanics, um, this one should be exciting, Lissa. Very hard SF article, or not. <laughs> just hard S. <laughs> hard, hard S. Hard article. <laughs> just hard science. From the New York Times, finding from particle research could rewrite known laws of physics by Dennis Overbye, which is about the muon particle which is like an electron but much much heavier and it's the article is talking about how the muon didn't behave as anticipated in experiments uh, which has huge implications on the laws of physics because it could mean we could break the standard model and for those of you listening who did not take <laughs> physics like Alyssa did, the standard model i mean it's like basically like Everything we take for granted about physics, basically. But this research about the Muon, which um, as the article details, like took place over a number of years, like people started seeing these these findings and were like, What? No, that has to be a fluke but then they did it over a couple of times and realized like this isn't a fluke. Um, is that with this new research we can actually get answers to the biggest questions of the universe, like what is dark matter actually? Like can particles just like exist and like we can't see them or like are they moving too fast and like that's why we like can't get a hold of them but they're like passing through but it's too fast for us to track like all these interesting things are coming out of this research and as somebody who took two years of physics i was just like yes it was just like ringing all of my bells i was like this is exciting um but yeah i i just think it's funny that physicists are like we need to protect the standard model but it's like you're doing all these tests to make sure that the standard model works, right? Like that's the whole point of physics is like repeating experiments to like make sure your research is right. But even though it's scary that laws that we have taken for granted can be broken, it's also really exciting cuz the standard model doesn't explain a lot of things and we're like, "Okay, but what is that thing?" You guys haven't talked about that thing and they're like, "Uh,
0: <laughs> I mean, it's like as far as I'm concerned with physics, if- break the standard model and break what's known, as long as it's not, like, you know, an impediment to engineering and any large civil infrastructure thing, right? Like, you yeah. know, if the building stays up, that's awesome, but if there's some quantum nonsense going on, like, go off- u- Like, nonsense. go off, universe. <laughs>
1: <laughs> go off, Ant-Man. Um, but, um, yeah, it's like, these are- these are okay, these are questions that have like implications on the very small scale because we're dealing with particles, but also on like the scale of the universe. It I don't think it's going to affect a lot of our day-to-day lives. Like the buildings will keep standing, the bridges will keep bridging, but um yeah, it's like we'll just like figure out like what the heck dark matter is. And there the article also mentions a ton of other questions, and I'm like, yeah, you guys need to figure that out. <laughs> I didn't go into physics so you guys have to figure that out. <laughs> what do you have for me, Alyssa? What have I guess what have you read since we last talked?
0: This is always a good question. Well, what I have for you today is a very fast read and it is is it worth reading if I forget everything I read by Danica Ellis over on Book Riot and like when I Is this I, an ad? I know. Like this is at super both of us? I know. This is super short. This is less than a minute. But yeah, this is something that is a conversation in like the bookish community at large because it's okay this is something that i'm personally not into and this isn't a dig at anyone but a lot of booktubers because that's the content i consume a lot of like at the end of the year they're rushing to hit their goal of like a hundred books so then they start reading poetry and like graphic novels to try and get through them quickly Mm. and i just have some Beef with that because of how then it's it's discounting those mediums, especially exactly. like poetry. You know, it has its like space in literature. But I think it's like I particularly take issue with trying to meet a goal by reading graphic novels mm-hmm. because then it's delegitimizing the graphic novel as a narrative format. And it's like you know yeah. legitimacy isn't the goal of everything. But there's a lot of pros of teaching graphic novels as literature. Anyway, getting away from that, but Mm
1: -hmm.
0: the point there that I was talking about with booktubers is the rushing to hit their goals, it's, oh, I read all these different books, I can't remember what they are. And I think it's like, yeah, this definitely is a bit of an at for both of us, because one of my goals at the beginning of 2020 was to engage more critically with the books I was reading. So actually one of the books that I mentioned later in this list is the first book I read in 2020, but yeah, it's, this podcast has allowed me to sit with my thoughts on different books, but I think as Ellis mentions in here, it's more of the themes that she traces um, versus like actual plot, and then I'm, I'm similar, I'm more character-driven than plot-driven. But a quote that I thought was... Basically the thesis of this is What I do often think about after those conversations though, is why I continue to prioritize reading when I don't seem to absorb much of it What's the point of reading when you don't remember any of it? And that's You know the core of what this very short article is. So give it a read Um, Something to consider if you are someone who is a a you know, sort of prolific reader or part of the bookish community because I think there definitely is a lot of pressure to read a lot of books and I think some of that is self imposed, um, and some of that is just for the sake of content. Um because definitely on BookTube I would say more than any other platform, it is very much like a content treadmill of, oh, I have to post like a monthly wrap up, I have to post a
1: TBR. So but those requirements are self-placed right that's that that's the culture of the online book community but no individual creator has to do that right so it also becomes a question of why is there this culture of not critically engaging with the work that you're consuming which i mean in my opinion that could create content fatigue right like i think we both experienced during this pandemic the um unfortunate feeling of just not wanting to read anymore because we're constantly because of university but also because of the podcast and our personal habits we read a lot so I don't know if you have experienced this maybe I'm just putting this on to you but I've definitely gone through that feeling of not wanting to read anymore and I think the solution to that is just to read more slowly (laughs) to consume less books and to be very particular about the books that I'm consuming And also thinking critically about them, right? I think my new strategy now when I'm reading, and I think it's because of the podcast, especially like in relation to a lot of the stuff that we've been reading, I've been taking it very seriously for my own creative work. I think my new strategy is to treat books like textbooks for Mm -hmm. techniques and for ways of exploring themes. And that way, the experience becomes more meaningful than just being like, well, I have to hit my goal, which I have been... Uh, guilty of I'm definitely of the sort that likes to read a lot of books in the year but I think I'm getting to the point where I want to consume more mindfully
0: yeah and like we took a month off um, a month off at the end of last calendar year end of 2020 and I was like, I'm going to read all these books. I did not pick up a single book over winter
1: break, Me neither.
0: I was just so tired, and it was a combination of the podcast as well as, like, just classes. Because mm-hmm. I especially find that when I'm reading for classes, because I'm also in two <sighs> courses right now where one of them I'm reading a book a week, and they're honestly not books I'm interested in for both of these classes, yeah. so being forced to, like, oh, I have to read these for school while also, like, reading stuff for the pod, it's, like, uh, the last thing I want to do on my break is read, so.
1: <laughs> I get that. I think that's also definitely a problem that we're dealing with because we're university students, mm-hmm. is that the funny dichotomy is that we're supposed to be critically engaging with this work because we have to talk about it four hours a week, but at the same time... um this is work that we don't want to critically engage with a lot of the time. So yeah. we just end up brushing it. Like, I, I, I won't say that about every book. I've read a lot of fantastic books this semester, and I'm very grateful for the opportunity to read them. But not just the books. It's also, like, the academic readings, you know, like, the literary criticism or, like, the, the scholarly work that you don't want to read. <laughs> like, yeah. And it's so, like, emotionally draining because we're constantly consuming new things every week. I feel like I spend, like, maybe, like, 20 hours of my week reading. And, like, I don't think that's an exaggeration to say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: And, um, I mean, it's also, like, personally, I'm not complaining about the amount of reading. It's just, it's going, I'm just walking through more, like, more so my process and my relationship with reading. And something, mm-hmm. I, I cannot remember if I've mentioned this before on the pod, but I stopped making quarterly TBRs, um, because it's like I know which things I have to read. Because we're also doing <laughs> the prompts on Instagram, which um, we're we're finishing that up in June. Just because it's one more thing on us for us yeah. to be like reading in addition to like the buddy reads and preparing for these episodes. And yeah. Vanessa and I had a small meeting um, recently where we were reviewing our schedule, and we realized that mm-hmm. we put a lot of like very reading intensive episodes in the first half of the year so by reading intensive like a lot of the recommendation episodes it's like oh no we need content for this as well um and then like my reading goal i like this is just my personal thing um (laughs) i (laughs) went from 13 to 31 i hit my 31 and i pulled none of you uh responded Uh, on the instagram so i just made it 69 that is my next reading goal to hit
1: i i mean i didn't want to put pressure on you by being like Alyssa, you have to read more books i I just let the people take control but the people did not take control (laughs) yep so that's my next that's my next goal (laughs) but it's like it's the same thing that writers always say about writing we're It's not just the act of physically writing that's writing, mm-hmm. it's also the thinking that you do about the book, it's the research, mm-hmm. it's the brainstorming, it's the outlining, it's the the like editing process, it's like the getting feedback process. It's the same thing with reading where it's like it's not just sitting down and reading the book that's reading, it's also thinking about it, writing about it, talking about it with other people. And I feel like when you think about it in that way, so much more of our energy is going into reading than you think, right? And that's the podcast. Yeah. And, and it's also just student life.
0: Yeah. And I think also, just like as two people who are interested in going into publishing, right? Like part of the work that we are doing for that is what are the current trends and what are the future trends, right? Especially because it's like the role that you want to get into is editorial. And then that's Mm -hmm. like, if you want to be an acquiring editor, it's kind of like what's selling right now, but what's going to sell in the next couple of years. And it's like being able to do that trend work is really important. And, you know, it's very complicated. I think it's like there's a lot of dimensions to the question of should I read everything if I don't remember it? Because it's like there is the like check marking to an extent, but also what perspective are you coming from because when mm-hmm. one person who we follow is her career goal is marine biology like she's not going into the field of publishing but she's still like you know reading doing all this content stuff and I'm thinking that's um, Alexandria Eng um, she's a youtuber and she has an Instagram. And there's, like, Joel Rochester. And these are people who are about Mm -hmm. our age um, as well. Joel Rochester, he wants to go into publishing. Um, I think he recently applied to, like, an apprenticeship in London. Um,
1: (gasps) Super cool.
0: Yeah, so he just submitted his dissertation. But he's someone who is part of the book community, but also plans on going into, you know, a more, like, career professionalized version of the book community, you know. So the relationship to reading is a bit different.
1: Yeah, everybody has a different relationship to reading, but I hope the takeaway is just to read mindfully regardless of what you're reading.
0: Getting into today's recommendation, you may have noticed the release date. It is May fourth, aka Nerd Day, aka May the Fourth be with you, despite my yeah, despite my having only read watched one Star Wars movie, uh, I'm more of a Star Trek fan. Anyway, but, yeah. <laughs> uh, today- Okay,
1: this is where we- this is <laughs> where we- this is where we- were. this is where we diverge. Ba, 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 ba. That's my Imperial March. You know which side I'm on. It's okay, there doesn't have to be sides. There doesn't have to be sides.
0: There doesn't have to be sides, but as I- We can coexist. Yeah, we can coexist. I will still- Yeah, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. But-
1: (laughs) Why did we have this conversation? (laughs) I don't know.
0: It's like, why are we starting imaginary beef? Like, we actually don't care that much.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The thing is, is that, above all, the plot twist is that I'm a K-pop stan. Like, that's the (laughs) ultimate fandom, so like, who even cares? Yeah. Okay. Happy May the 4th, people.
0: Yeah, and we were just really enthusiastic to recommend some speculative fiction, and this is all-encompassing science fiction, fantasy, horror, magic realism, all the sub-genres. And kicking us off, we have Vanessa with a first contact story.
1: My first contact story is The Three-Body Problem by Cixin Liu, translated by Ken Liu, and the writer's name is spelled C-I-X-I-N-L-I-U. Uh, And this is from Tor Books, so you know it's gonna be sci fi. Um, So, this book, we start off with the setting of the Cultural Revolution in China, which, if you're not really familiar with Chinese history, it's very complicated, but like the basic thing that I wanna say is that it was a period of incredible political upheaval and a lot, a lot of violence. And a lot of that violence involved scholars, scientists, writers, and other. People of the upper crust of academia being targeted by the state and soldiers of the state. There was a lot of internal violence and um, just a lot of a lot of uncertainty. And we start with that uncertainty with this opening of the book, where we're following the trial of this one academic, uh, Ye Jetai, and he is killed by student militants in the university. His daughter, who is also a scientist, is a part of this um, this like targeted group as well and she is given the choice to either be sent to a forced labor camp or, or become a part of this super secret government project and she chooses the government project and she gets isolated high in the mountains working on some weird tech, okay? We flash forward a lot of years later, I'm pretty sure it's the modern day, and we're following this guy, uh, Wang Mao. And he is a nanomaterials researcher, so he's involved in the same sort of uh, stuff relating to physics as the other characters that we are introduced to earlier. At this point in the story, physicists across the country are dying by suicide, including um, the daughter of the scientist that we meet at the beginning. His daughter is named Ye Zhe, and her daughter is named Yang Don. So Yang Don dies by suicide. Uh, leaving her very old mother at this point alone. Wang feels bad. He takes care of the mother, but he's also searching for the reason why these uh, physicists are dying by suicide, and he realizes that the laws of physics are falling apart. Bingo. Um, And then slowly becomes involved in this intergalactic conspiracy. There are aliens in this book. Kind of. You'll see what I mean when you read it. And uh, the title, The Three-Body Problem, comes from the name of a game in the book that Wang tracks down where people are... People on this distant planet called Trisolaris are trying to pro- progress civilization in the way of any, like, of those humanity-building games. Like, if you've heard of Civilization, or, you know, like, any of those, like, phone games that you get ads for, like, in the middle of YouTube videos, like, you know, like, build your kingdom sort of thing. It's that. But it's on this planet called Triceleris, and the question is: Is Triceleris even made up? Are there real-life implications of this game? So we're dealing with nanotech, uh, Chinese history, um, video games, and virtual reality, aliens, um, communication with other intelligent beings. This is like hard sci-fi. Like this is like rock-solid sci-fi. Like, like I just said, there's so much science in it but I, I think it's so much fun and it's the first book in a trilogy. I will pick up the other books eventually because I, I need to know what happens, but content notes for murder, suicide, violence, state-sanctioned violence, and torture, but a really, really good book.
0: So this is my best friend's favorite favorite <laughs> series and at some point uh, during like my senior year of high school, he explained what Happened to me because I'm like, it's hard to SF. I'm not gonna get to it. I really might pick this up again. He explained it to me, but it's you so know, it was high school, we repressed all those memories, so I, I really
1: <laughs> truly don't remember. Um, oh no.
0: But this is really exciting. Um, so, yeah, and uh, Ken Liu is a translator, but he's also, he, and he's translated like a lot of very popular contemporary um, Chinese science fiction. So there's a lot of other work that I want to read, and I definitely want to pick up this trilogy. And again, we're talking about The Three-Body Problem by Xi Jin Liu.
1: Yeah, I mean, back to quantum mechanics, it's just popping up everywhere in this episode. Yeah, like, as somebody who like knows a little bit about this stuff, but definitely not enough as the literal scientist in this book, I think both the writer and the translator did such a good job of making this accessible to us, and like yes it takes a little bit of work it is a denser book I wouldn't recommend this to like a teenager um, admire your friend our friend for doing that um, at, at such a young age because even now I'm like wait what <laughs> but it, it was enjoyable and I and I hope people like it what about your recommendation to us Alyssa
0: I would like to recommend but I also have to acknowledge that my neighbor has decided that's a good time to cut wood, so sorry if you hear that in the background. <laughs> but my recommendation is a short story collection, Exhalation by Te Chiang, and this is from Knopf. Uh, I'm so mad whenever I read his work, because it's so good. <laughs> it's so good. I feel that, yeah. This is the second collection from Chiang. His first collection is Story of Your Life and Others, and the title is the, the uh, title story is the basis for the movie Arrival, which... Uh, read the story. I When I read that for the first time, I'm like, I'm insulted, because it's so yeah. cool. Um, that's my favorite alien
1: movie. It's, it's my favorite.
0: It's so good. But Exhalation, there are nine stories in here, and they're ranging from flash fiction to uh, the story that's my favorite, which is basically a novelette within oh, this book. Yes. And we're getting a lot of different topics so we're getting kind of like theoretical of um let's see i'm trying to figure out how to describe this because there's a lot of topics that are covered here and it's very much speculative where it's like we get some space stuff but we also get um my favorite which is the novelette the life cycle of software objects and this is exploring like this is a story that happens over many years and this story, we're getting, um, kind of a topic that I'm personally very interested in of the idea of virtual and physical worlds, and it's like, I'm using specific language there because I think there's a tendency to say the real versus the virtual, and the, you Mm. know, suggestion there is that it's fake, but it's like, no, it's all real, how someone interacts with this is real, and I think more people are starting to get that with like, social media and just relationships people build online, um, but these are really, really, really excellent, excellently written stories, and they're all so different. There is, and if you're not someone who, (laughs) I don't know why you'd be listening to this episode if you're not into science fiction, but if you're not really, like, a science fiction reader, um, I feel weird about categorizing this because there's also like the whole thing of like legitimacy of oh it's like literary science fiction but it's like this mm. does tend to fall more into the category of literary sf and speculative fiction um rather than like hard sf uh but yeah this is <sighs> it's, it's such a good collection and I think Vanessa and I have both, well, I've read the whole book, but I think Vanessa has also read the first story, which is The Merchant at the Alchemist Gate, which is a story within a story, and that's always mm, chef's kiss, but you, you pick it up, because I will always <laughs> recommend this. This is a go-to when people ask me, oh, so what book do you recommend? You know, we, we talked about this at the top of the show of why read if you can't, remember what you've read i remember reading this book it's good pick it up (laughs) this is always a (laughs) go-to
1: a miracle um yeah i i was going to say that i I read the merchant and the alchemist's gate such a good story i feel like i always think about that story also just the way that chiang isn't afraid to write about like people who are different from him times that are different than the ones that we're living in technology that is often treated as like like weird and kind of like ooh science fiction you know like he's like like you said like I don't want to I don't want to make it into like well it's literary science fiction therefore it's like valid but he's like the way that he writes with such confidence about the worlds that he's building and how convinced I am of like every reality that he paints I'm like, that, that's, like, the skill that I am trying to pick up. That's what I meant when I said that I am trying to read things as textbooks and, and learn from them creatively. It's like, that's how I feel when I read Chiang, and I'm just like, ah, yeah, it's about time to pick up exhalation.
0: Yeah. Yeah, he is one of the writers where, after reading his work, I'm like, I guess I gotta write, <laughs> you know?
1: <laughs> it's like, well... What now? Moving
0: into our fantasy section of this episode, what do you have
1: for us? We have removed our astronaut suits, and now we are going to don our wizard hats. And we are going to The Near Witch by Victoria Schwab from Titan. Victoria Schwab publishes under Victoria Schwab for her YA. So this is YA. It's the story about this strange little town called Near that had a history with a very scary witch and that witch's memory continues to live on in the form of basically ghost stories right like tales that they tell the children of the town like "Ooh, the near witch is gonna get you um and she has that like very deep like impression on the town's collective memory and many years later a stranger appears in near and children start disappearing again and the question is: Is the stranger involved in it? Is the stranger possibly even the witch of near, or like a manifestation of her? Is the witch of near back? Um, and it's about the protagonist Lexi trying to figure this out, siding with the stranger, but also, like, knowing that weird stuff is happening. I this is Victoria Schwab's first book. This was her debut novel, many years ago. I believe ten years ago. Now she's had a very. Um, lovely career that I am a part of because I'm a fan and I am on my quest to recommend every one of her books just slowly in this podcast but the writing is so atmospheric and very cool it feels fairy tale adjacent which is why I'm putting it in the this specific category um I mean we have witches we have like uh wards against witches you know like how do you defend against a witch and like all like the weird like all this like cool folk magic um and again it's set in this small town like a very traditional fairy tale setting. We have the archetypal characters of the stranger, the teenage protagonist coming of age, um the elders of the town acting as the council, um a lot of like fantasy um tropes and archetypes but not in a way that feels boring. I quite liked it. Um and we have like the spooky landscape that feels alive, uh, calling all poets, let us rejoice. And um it's her, it's her debut novel, like I said, and you can see her voice in it so clearly, but also reading that, I think just like around the time that I, I read Vicious, I think I read Vicious and then like a little bit after I picked this up and I was like, wow, like you can see her growth and like not even like Vicious wasn't even like that far off from this book. And then, like, reading adele Rue, like, a few months ago, and, like, thinking back to me experiencing The Near Witch and just, like, seeing that growth again. Ugh. Just, like, you go, writers. Writers who just keep growing, you go.
0: And I guess, like, content notes on this for, you know, kidnapping and missing children.
1: But... Yeah. Kidnapping violence. Um, yeah. Uh, like... <laughs> I always hesitate to say this because it sounds like a video game, but, like, fantasy violence, you know? Yeah. And, like, kidnapping, um, imprisonment, I think, happens at one point. Um, I'm, I'm probably missing a couple, but those are the major ones.
0: Yeah, I think this book might offer me... I think this book might offer me what I was hoping for with the other duology. Um, I, I'm not... I'm seriously not trying to be shady because... Uh, yeah, but I... I am intrigued by the you know fairy tale adjacent where I think what's attractive about fairy tales is that they were perpetuated for a reason, and it's like those type of stories are supposed to be warnings for children um mm-hmm. and taking those elements of uh oh my god i i think la 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 larona la, la, la you know <laughs> I can't pronounce it, I'm sorry, but you know like the what? it it's a um I think it might be Mexican and like some, like South. like oh, La
1: Llorona! <laughs> la Thank you. The uh, you mean the 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 crying woman? Yes, the crying the, woman, the ghost. Yes, yes, we so, got there. La Llorona. Okay. Keep so going. Sorry,
0: oh god. Um, <laughs> But it's like how she is an omen of like, don't go near water because it's like
1: you know mm-hmm. if there's
0: a creepy woman there, it's like that's a strong deterrent. But it's like there's the more like realistic thing of you don't know how to swim it doesn't take much to drown just three inches of water Mm -hmm. if your face is in the water you're gonna die so i think like stories like these fairy tales i'm very intrigued by from that element so i this is
1: going
0: this isn't going to be on like the the close tbr but i think i might add this one to the tbr
1: yay you know what's interesting is that this book went out of print Mm -hmm. not too long after it came into print which was like, Victoria Schwab spoke about this, like, it was, it was very hard. Like, especially if you have this lifelong dream of becoming a writer, and then your first book gets out of print after a while, it's very sad, but it came back into print because she's been so successful in recent years, and she wrote this, I believe it's a preface that she wrote for the book, and she talks about, like, at the end of the day, this book is about fear, and how, like, poisonous fear is, and we're thinking about the stories, not just that we tell ourselves, but the stories that we push onto, like, situations and narratives. Like, why do we have this idea of what a witch is? Like, where is that coming from? And also, like, is that even what's happening here? Like, and the same thing with the stranger. Like, why do we automatically assume that the stranger is something to fear? So, like, I think that is a, that is a theme that is ever-present in our times. Like something that we can always relate to mm-hmm. is um, fear and how damaging it is.
0: Just a brief note on what you said about this book going out of print and um, at the time this being a debut novel. A statistic I saw recently. I can't. I don't know what article this is from. This was tweeted by Alexander Chi, who is a pretty well-known writer, but. In 2020, 98% of debut authors sold less than 5,000 copies of their books, so if you are someone who is able to buy books right now, you know what? buy from debuts, just look debuts in 2020, buy from writers you don't know, find a st- like book that sounds interesting to you, if you do have that income, um, do that to support mm-hmm. debuts, this is the hardest of times to be debuting.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's really hard. Yeah, support writers. That's all we gotta say. Uh, What about you, Alyssa? What is your fantasy recommendation?
0: So, not a book. Spicing things up. (laughs)
1: Great. (laughs) Um,
0: For you, I have Heaven's Vault, which is a video game produced by the company Inkle. And this is a puzzle adventure. And I'm categorizing this as fantasy in the same way that Star Wars is a science fantasy and not actually science mm-hmm. fiction. And Say it
1: of for people in the back. Like,
0: okay, you cannot fight me on this. I know that this is more of like a mild take at this point because a lot of people have talked about this as science fantasy. In the words mm-hmm. of N.K. Jemisin, what is the force? It's magic. Well, okay, not a direct quote, but you know. She also supports this. And,
1: and um, speaking from uh, Victoria Aviard, we got typical, f- This obviously I'm paraphrasing, but Star Wars is more of a fantasy than science fiction story because we have the traditional fantasy archetypes of like the hero farm boy, the scoundrel, and the princess. There you go. What else do you need? Okay. It's a fairy tale.
0: <laughs> but anyway, talking about Heaven's Fault. Uh, in this, players assume the role of Alia Elazra, who is an archaeologist tracking down the lost roboticist Janiki Renba, and she has a robot sidekick named Six. So the primary gameplay element in this is deciphering and learning an ancient language from artifact fragments that you find by flying around the galaxy. And uh, it's really cool, just the world building, and also if you're someone who doesn't really play video games, this isn't like a video game in the sense of like there's a lot of heavy um, gameplay elements, it's like, it is primarily, you're finding things, you're walking around, you're finding things, and you're translating. And then it has such a fascinating language system, and the music is gorgeous. Typically when I'm playing video games, it's also like, the types of games that I usually play, um, are a bit different than this. I'll listen to a YouTube video, or audiobook, or do something else, but this entire game, I, I just listen to the music because it's gorgeous. Hmm
1: nice as you know i'm i'm a pretty serious language learner i really like learning languages i think a language-based game is really interesting also ties back a little bit to arrival Mm -hmm. and um, the story that it's based on because language plays a big role in that yeah like deciphering and and learning about this um ancient civilization and there's robots it sounds really cool
0: yeah and i think it's also interesting there's a lot of kind of like Socio political elements of this that, like, mm-hmm. personally, I, I there's so much more that could be done, and it's like analysis that could be done of it. But it's like what's present is really interesting because Alia, as an archaeologist, it's actually kind of a bit blasphemous and her traveling because there is a religion built around um, what's known as the rivers, which is how people get around to different planets and mm. there's that element of it, and the language in question, it's based on Chinese and, well it's not based on Chinese, but in, um, like, Chinese and, uh, Egyptian, those are, uh, logographic languages, mm-hmm. so they're based mm-hmm. on what the character looks like, it's similar to, like, the meaning right. of it, um, and that's what the language is in this, and it's- Super cool. Yeah, it's really cool. Uh, I believe it's now available on Switch, um, yeah, but this is, this is just such a world that I'm thinking of, especially with, in relationship to my own project, of, which is a speculative poetry collection, um, thinking about, like, what does it mean to revisit these ancient, these ancient things when Mm -hmm. no one's really interested in the old.
1: Right. And how do you do that in a format that isn't just a book, right? Not just a novel, but in different formats like a, a video game or a poetry collection. Oh yeah,
0: I guess like specifically the reason why I'm recommending this and like this bookish podcast is because video games also definitely have the potential to be serious narrative formats, and there's a lot of interesting mm-hmm. things that go on because it's not just the written text; it's also what are the design elements going into this. What are right. um, where are the music elements? Where the yeah so. I think, video games as art, they also don't need to try and hold the title of art, but they absolutely can be art. This is a hill mm. I will die on, and I will not debate this. <laughs> this is taking no
1: constructive criticism. <laughs> with that hot take, we're moving on to the horror section. Um, my first recommendation for an adult historical novel set outside the U.S. is Silvia Moreno-Garcia's Mexican Gothic from Del Rey, which is a novel set in 1950s Mexico. Already interested in that setting because it's not somewhere that I typically go um, in my reading. So, spoiled socialite Noemi Taboada receives a concerning letter from her newlywed cousin, and her father sends Noemi to check in on this cousin because the the letter is accusing her new husband of poisoning her. It's very strange. There's mentions of, like, snakes and talking walls and all these very scary things. So Noemi is worried about her cousin. She goes in to check on her. She goes to this manor called High Place, which is this English-style gothic manor deep in the mexican countryside it even has english soil um because they brought it over and um all these strange and and really awful things have happened there and noemi learns about them and they threaten to pull her in basically so it's a speculative fiction meets body horror meets ghost story novel i mean i really really liked it um i i just finished it so i'm still collecting my thoughts on it but um a major part of the book is that noemi is studying anthropology in university and eugenics plays a major role in this book because her cousin catalina has married into this very white supremacist family from england who has like this very like strong connection to england and obviously they're bringing over the architecture the the soil the practices and they do not hide their racism And Noemi is like very visibly brown. She has dark hair. She doesn't look like Catalina, who um, is like, she's a bit lighter. She has lighter hair. Um, So it's not just the supernatural that makes Noemi feel unsafe, but the real-life danger of eugenics and white supremacy and that threat being there. So we're afraid for her on multiple levels, the real and the unreal. So there are a lot of content notes for this text, and I can understand if a reader doesn't want to pick up this book because of those content notes. So just be mindful if you choose to read this book. Um, Content notes for murder, death, suicide, violence, including gun and domestic, rape, sexual assault, incest, infanticide, cannibalism, body horror, racism, anti latina racism and anti-Indigenous, but also like a general white supremacist viewpoint coming from that family, Um, colorism, kidnapping and confinement, alcohol use, drug use, including mushrooms and cigarettes, miscarriage, abuse, and sexual content.
0: This is a very popular title that I've seen around a lot. Uh, I know that you've been super excited to pick this book up. Um, I I think... um, And I think it's also like thinking about this as horror in a not traditional sense of the term, Mm -hmm. and... Jesse from Bowties and Books, they have a really great video about who gets to define horror because I think, yeah. like, I think they might have talked about this book as well as some other books where, uh, if you're used to a lot of, like, traditional thrillers written by, like, white authors, it's horror can manifest in a lot of different ways. And I think it's, like, I don't want to base this just on the content notes because it's like, there is a horror in itself to white supremacy and how that manifests, especially for someone who is entering the space as, uh, you know, someone who does not fit into that ideal, especially with a family who is very interested in eugenics.
1: (laughs) Thank you for bringing that up because I recently got to read a chapter from Darkly Black History and America's Gothic Soul by Leela Taylor, who is a fantastic writer and I'm dying to pick up her book. It's just so good. The first chapter was so good and she visited one of my classes to talk about Afrofuturism, Afro-pessimism, and also Afro-Gothic and like that possibly being a new thing. But what her book seems to talk about just from reading the first chapter is how Southern Gothic emerges from slavery. Like that is how the Southern Gothic is allowed to exist. You can't have that big manor without slave labor. You can't have like, you can't have the ghost without the actual ghost of slavery haunting the text and haunting the land, and the way that has implications on the work that's being produced in that genre. So, thinking about the English Gothic in relation to the Southern Gothic, but also in this possibly new um, subgenre of um, Latin American Gothic. It's haunted by, and this the text also talks about this. It's haunted by the exploitation of workers. It's haunted by the uh, co-opting of indigenous culture and also its destruction. It's based on, it's based on colorism. It's based on eugenics and like the way those are playing a role in this too. Like the What's scary isn't just the supernatural element. It's not the ghost or, like, the thing that's hiding behind the walls. It's also, like, the very real horror of real people and people in power. Um, And that plays a huge role in this because Noemi is in a position of she doesn't belong and she's made to know that. Um, I think it was a really great exploration of all those ideas and the way the gothic can play a role in stories not centered on england or even like on a white protagonist like how do characters of color interact with that the next book is a book that we read together but Alyssa, do you want to take this recommendation away
0: yeah wrapping up this section of the podcast we are bringing back a podcast favorite which is the diviners by Libba bray and this is from little brown books for young readers This is the book, and this is the series that got me back into reading series, and I wholly blame Vanessa. Um, (laughs) This is actually the series that we used as our, like, practice episodes. You will never hear these episodes, by the way. But we use these as, like, our practice episodes to get used to, like, talking about books in this format. But this is a- okay. Sorry. Vanessa helped write this up, and she's calling it the first book in the quadriology. Qu- quadriology? Quadri-
1: quadrilogy, quadrilogy. Quadri- I that is what the internet says. Okay, I have a tendency. Are you gonna t- say tetralogy? I was gonna
0: say tetralogy or quartet.
1: Oh, I love quartet. I do love quartet. That's cute. This I is just, when you look up <laughs> when you look up what is a four book series. Google says quadrilogy.
0: Okay, well that's besides the point. <laughs> We're just having to be the oh. uh, linguistic battle here, but in this book we are following Evangeline, uh, Evie O'Neill. And she causes a bit of drama in her small Ohio town and is sent to New York City to spend time with her Uncle Will, who is the manager of a religious slash occult studies museum nicknamed the Museum of the Creepy Crawlies. This is set during the 1920s, and we get We get 1920s glamour, but also it's like there is a wide cast of characters, so we do get a mm-hmm. lot of different looks at what the 1920s means to these different characters yeah and you know evie she hates ohio she hates this small like small town she is so thrilled to be in new york however murders start happening and um there's implications that there's some sort of occult thing going on, so her uncle Will is pulled in to join the investigation, and Evie tags along, um, to catch the so-called Pensacola Killer. And
1: mm-hmm.
0: I think this is revealed early enough in the book, but Evie has this ability to, when she holds an object, she can read it, so she can read the past mm-hmm. of it, and mm-hmm. she- <laughs> She deems herself indispensable to Uncle Will in solving this case. <laughs> oh, poor Will. <laughs> yeah, and we're following a really fun cast of characters. They all have their own plot lines. Um, but in this, we're mainly following Evie. And this book is, like, I-, I wouldn't call the other books sort of, like, horror. They go into a, a bit other things, um, more supernatural. But also, this isn't yeah horror- I guess this is, if you read a lot of horror, you would possibly wouldn't consider this horror. If you are home, and it is dark, and you're listening to this on audio because there's a bit of a sonic <laughs> element going on, it's creepy. It's very creepy. I was I was spooked.
1: Um, you know what else is creepy? When you're reading this, the paperback version, and then you get up to get some water and you think that you're hearing the creepy song from the book play in your hallway and you're like nope I don't actually need that water I'm just gonna go back to bed it's creepy in all formats
0: <laughs> yeah I I feel so bad because it's I'm forgetting who the narrator is but she's an excellent narrator um if you're someone like Isn't me January where, Jones yes wait January January Lavoy, January Lavoy,
1: January <laughs> You
0: try so hard. We're halfway there. <laughs> yeah, teamwork. One brain cell. Um, oh. But it's narrated by January Lavoie. These are larger books, so if you're like me and you have difficulty getting through large casts of characters and larger books, highly recommend. She is an incredible narrator. And content notes for murder, violence, uh, body horror, slash gore, racism, anti black, anti semitic, as well as like general white supremacy, um, domestic abuse, rape, alcohol use, drug use and uh specifically cigarettes and abortion but this okay. is a book that vanessa and i always talk about and also specifically we will say, we we will unintentionally use like slang because a lot of slang comes up in here and if you're someone who's like kind of gets bothered by like a lot of like period slang use and it's like, oh, it feels ham-fisted, then, you know, you might not enjoy this, but (laughs) there's so many things where after reading this, I kept saying it's, like, on the level. uh, Yes, I keep saying on the level, and I keep saying Jake.
1: Yeah, it's Jake. Yeah. Jake. (laughs) Um, yeah, I use that internally a lot, too, like, but I say it in the way of, like, one of the characters, like, you know the character that's always saying, like, on the level? like in that way like I keep saying I that hurt, I, like, yeah her. yeah <laughs> like I just hear her saying it in my head I mean I totally get the point of like if you're a person who doesn't like the like this is a period piece like description a lingo etc you might not like it but I think Libby Bray did such a good job and these books took forever to write like this whole series yeah. I'm pretty sure it took like 10 years for her to get through the whole thing or like eight each book took a couple of years to get through because there's so much research that goes into, like, and also the 20s are a little bit, like, far back in mm-hmm. terms of, like, our research. So, like, not a lot of records are always there. Like, we do have photographs and we do have, like, films and stuff from that time. And obviously, like, it's not far back enough that we don't have any historical, like, like, um, what's it called? like
0: Records, primary documents.
1: Yeah. Yeah, primary. Yeah, like we we don't have like it's not like we don't have any primary text, but it's like it's you know it's hard because New York City especially has changed so much since then that it's it can be difficult to see the city in that way. But I think she did a, a really great job.
0: Yeah, and I think it's also like we get more of this in the following books, but beyond the glamour of that's often memorialized and spoken about, like in *The Great Gatsby*, like that is. Somewhat, what we're following with Evie, but we also get a lot of other characters who are not privy to this glamour because of like race and right. class.
1: Right, exactly. I think that's also really great too, is we have um, a cast that represents a lot of diversity in terms of experience and perspective. And yeah, they're experiencing different kinds of New York, and we see that especially in like the second book. Um, because we get introduced to more neighborhoods and like really see what life is like there. I know, I know the layer of dreams, unmatched. Layer unmatched of dreams because <laughs>
0: yeah, is my favorite book in this series. I mean, I think Vanessa and I both like absolutely love this series, but we also have a lot of a fair amount of criticism for it. Yeah, yeah. But I think it's just like love your darlings, and also it's like it is possible to love a thing and be critical of it.
1: Yeah. Layer of Dreams supremacy. Yeah. Who's with me? Yeah,
0: Layer okay, Layer of Dreams is the best book though. Like I will not I will also not accept criticism on this. <laughs> I heard I heard one of my favorite booktubers, like, I, I think she's just hilarious. I disagree with a lot of her book tastes, but I think she's great. Um <laughs> she was ranking these books and she ranked <gasps> the third book the highest and I Oh my strongly God. Disagree. How can I genuinely you? think that is the worst book in this series. Yeah. The third book falls into the sophomore book slump,
1: but... Yeah, of like, what are we doing here? We don't know. Let's try to figure it out over 200 pages.
0: Yeah. Okay, but again, we were talking about The Diviners by Libba Bray. Is that it? Um, closing out our episode today, we have some reading recommendations. Vanessa,
1: what do you have for us? Today, I have a very special podcast recommendation. All my podcast listeners, put your hands up. We have The End of the World with Josh Clark from iHeartRadio. If you've heard of Josh Clark's name, it's because he is the co-host of one of my favorite podcasts, Stuff You Should Know. And this is a fantastic podcast about all the ways humans might go extinct. Yeehaw! Um, so basically the premise is that um, we as humans could have like a really incredible future with all the technology that's progressing and increases in quality of life in a number of places around the world. We could have an incredible future, but we need to get through the next 200 years and um, to be able to do that. And so, so um, this is a 10-episode deep dive into all the ways humanity's future might go and also dealing with all the dangers that we haven't encountered yet, but we are going to start encountering or we might encounter. So it's very possible that if if we are actually alone in the universe um, and if we don't survive, all intelligent life in the universe is going to die out because it dies with us too. So we have not just a responsibility to ourselves, but to the universe, you know. So topics include the great filter, AI, and natural risks like climate change. Um, And it makes you want to do your own research. That's what I really loved about this podcast. I was afraid. I was like, this is going to really get me in a really deep depressed spot because it's dealing with all the ways that we could die as a civilization or as a species. And it's actually really comforting to know the research and know possible solutions. And like, The fact that we just we really just need regulation on things we need to regulate ourselves we need to be better managers of our time and resources and of ourselves and just take responsibility for things and yes some things are unknown but you know what that's okay we just need to do our best Is basically the whole thing and it was really comforting and like I said it makes you want to do your own research into all these things and I mean, this podcast inspired a number of space poems, so thanks, Josh.
0: <laughs> I think this is now just going to be an every episode thing. But poets are feral for nature. Um, we are. I think I don't know if I'll pick up the entire podcast just because I do. I do have a large backlog, but I probably will listen to the Great Filter and the AI episodes because those are so good. Special interests of mine.
1: Oh, there was a really good episode. I, like, can't name every episode because it is, like, just 10 episodes. So, like, what's the point? There's a really great episode on, like, uh, biotechnology. So the biotechnology episode is especially relevant now as we're in a pandemic and we're still experiencing it. So it's about, like, natural viruses, bacteria, but also the labs and, like, all the, like, potentially like, catastrophic research that's being done in labs, like, when things aren't done right and when protocols aren't followed. It's like, you can't, you can't let that thing out in the wild. Why didn't you close the lid tight? You know, like, those sorts of, like, uh, lab procedure things. And that just gave me incredible anxiety in 2019. And now we're in 2021. And it has, like, all new relevance. But, yeah, so many good episodes. Part of me wants Josh Clark to make, like, a follow-up season but at the same time it's too good it's just too good where it is i'm not gonna be greedy (laughs) what is your recommendation for me today Alyssa?
0: oh boy this week i have for you on the behavioral economy of the book world by robert frank and this is on literary hub and this article is examining the behavioral economy of book buying in the digital age and this isn't looking at like Specifics of what's necessarily dictating, but it's looking at larger trends. And what came to mind for me is the current controversy of publishers paying book talkers because how TikTok works as a platform, it's easy to go viral. And this is similar with Twitter, but it's like with how those mediums work. Twitter is good for like short bots. Like a thread can go viral, but it's the same in the same way where it's like a second book in a series is likely to sell less because there's the the first book is necessary to follow. You know, it- it's not Twitter is not an easy platform for viral content in the same way that you can get a minute long um, thing on TikTok. And and the controversy here is that booktalk and uh, tiktok is a much newer platform compared to book bloggers instagram and youtube and publishers notoriously have not paid a lot of these people on other platforms and they've been in the game for a very long time and there's i think there's something to be said where i think the defense the defense that publishers have been using it's it's difficult to track, like how people's recommendations directly affect sales versus like tiktok you see a viral video of 2014 titles and then it's like suddenly you're selling your backlog of all these books um and i was just thinking about this because i i refuse to like actually like be upset specific creators um Mm -hmm. unless you know they have actually done problematic things but i refuse to be mad at like talkers because it, it's like it's not their choice to get paid like please get paid for the content you're producing mm. but also it's like these booktubers specifically um just because i consume the most of that they spent hours on editing recording and like preparing yeah. all their content and that's a lot of unpaid labor and that's a lot of free marketing that these publishers are getting because the price of the 25 dollar hardcover price is not the same as like many hours of labor
1: for sure I think this is a part of a larger issue which is that publishing hasn't really caught up to the way things are done in the digital age and not just in the way of like oh they don't have like audiobooks for this title or like ebooks for this title it's bigger than that it's also like how do you how do you deal with questions of labor that are going on in various industries right like because of the gig economy and how things work and, like, what qualifies as labor, what doesn't, um, and, like, the excuses that are being employed for that. And I also, like, I am, I, I, feel empathy for, like you said, like, creators who are spending a lot of time on preparing content, and they don't see anything from that, you know, from the publisher. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's complicated.
0: Yeah, it's, like, the, this is not a simple issue, and I think this is also... This, uh article in particular something i'm interested in as like someone who's developing an interest in like trend analysis because Mm -hmm. like publishing is also like notoriously usually two to three years behind like you know akin to like what how the actual like book publishing process goes but i think especially within the digital age it's like you see like the effects of amazon and then now like libro mm-hmm. FM, bookshop.org and all of these alternative ways and there have been a lot of articles that have come out within the past year i think a lot on like publishers weekly talking about how bookshops have needed to adapt um during the pandemic and how a lot of um bookstores have streamlined their process of like online shopping and all of that and there's like a lot of ways that publishing is affected by the that type of purchasing but also the specific books which get picked up it's like influencers are a major variable there
1: yeah for sure like you said this is an indicator again that publishing is a couple of years behind on things but i think it's promising that we're even having the conversation because for so many years, it's been taken for granted that um, book content producers will make content and that's it, right? That's their job. Why should they get paid for doing that? Um, and I think now we're questioning that, that thing that we have taken for granted for so long. And hopefully, um, we'll come out with... A better idea. I don't know what the solution is, but I think it's important that we're even having the conversation in the first place.
0: Yeah, I think it's- I'm a lot less <laughs> optimistic. I don't know. I just- because it's, like, my thoughts on publishing are also, like, publishing is a very small sector of culture, and it's, like, the trends that we're seeing in publishing are reflected in a lot of other industries, but, you know, publishers get to decide what money they- what money they put behind different books like bestsellers list are more or less fixed because it's like oh here's all the money we're going to put into marketing this book um, yeah and yeah that's a big issue yeah and like we're both frat- fans of the try guys and net and ariel fulmer they recently announced their cookbook is coming out and something that like if you're not familiar with publishing that's mentioned in the video that they have about this is the agent closed out their auction deal it is unusual for a book to go to auction because that means that enough yeah. publishers are interested in it that they're offering competing deals um, exactly so it's like there's going to be a ton of money behind that because the try guys their book um the hidden power of fucking up that came out 20 that came out 2019 that sold ridiculously well because they have an online following because yeah it's because they have a platform and that relationship with publishing is very different than a lot of debut authors who don't have that built-in platform and also (laughs) this is just another thing that i've been existential about recently but the way that young writers are now basically being forced to be online and being forced to be present online to have their own brand quote-unquote
1: exactly and that's something
0: I struggle with right as it's like a 20 a 20 year old trying to deal with how do I present myself online when it's like I just want to vibe but also in certain ways where it's like I am I think imitating and seeing like what are these like 30 somethings doing who are writers but also it's like where they are career-wise is very different from where I am
1: <laughs> yeah that's a big question. I think we see that especially because we're poets and a lot of the writing on that like as, like a lot of the writing that we see on the internet, especially on Instagram is like short uh Instagram poetry pop poetry um and that's the way people are communicating a lot of the times like in like that sector of poetry and it it becomes this question of do do I post my poetry? Right. Like, do I share my work online in that way? And like you said, there is this pressure of like, well, I have to like build the brand so that a publisher will like pick up my book. And if they if I don't have a platform before like I start publishing or, or like try to start publishing, I'm not going to get it. Like that's already just like another stressor on top of like the million other stressors of wanting to be a published writer is this idea of having a platform
0: yeah <sighs> because it's like that is i don't know because publishers have this weird fixation from what i've watched from like a lot of different like youtubers who end up writing books publishers are very fixated on like how many subscribers do you have it, but like not really understanding how subscriptions vary from viewership and like engagement where yeah, yeah i think something i've noticed like most notably just because it's different from a lot of the other publishers bloomsbury on instagram they've really been utilizing reels and what i'm thinking about in regards to that is the focus on audience there is much more on people who are like native to the platform and are within that because it's the type of humor and like a lot of the audio is like tiktok audio and that's being ported over into this content and that's interesting to see from like the primary the primary platform of a major publisher of a major corporate publisher
1: cue um sad sigh i don't know i just feel like it's a another thing that we have to think about i just want a vibe (laughs) it's like i want to like go into my cave with my bat write my spec fic and then like be a hobbit while i send query letters to agent being like take me take me please pick me you know choose like choose me pick love me, me pick me <laughs> pick me it's the kickball field all over again but um and not have to deal with, like again like this whole other pressure of like creating community where there it's like oversaturated with content really like all of these platforms are so full of like the same type of content of like in the book community at least i don't know but q crisis
0: <laughs> yeah I, uh, it's it's so complicated it's so complicated I, uh, <laughs> Well, I guess we're ending this episode on dread, but thank you for listening to this installment of Dear Literature. If you enjoyed the episode, please consider subscribing wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review. This helps people find us and lets us know what you like about the pod. You can follow us on Instagram at dearlitpod. That's D-E-A-R-L-I-T-P-O-D. We post some content there that you won't hear us discussing here. If you've read any of the books we talked about today, leave a comment and let us know your thoughts. The music you heard in this episode was composed by Ben Solzinski. You can find more of his work at bgsmusic.com. The cover of this podcast was made by our very own Vanessa. Until next time, happy reading.
1: And may the fourth be with you.